We continue our series this morning uh, kind of by slowing down a bit. The past few uh, sermons, we've uh, covered a lot of uh, ground, and so we're just going to focus on seven verses in the third chapter. Uh, we have been uh, progressing through the prophet's message to a very despondent and, un- and unfaithful nation of Israel. You know, uh, Malachi has enumerated the ways in which the children of God had adulterated his covenant and really ha- had kind of abandoned him. You know, while the Edomites prospered all around, Israel's hope of redemption had faded away. There was no semblance of anticipation left in the hearts of the people. With the dissolution of hope came the desertion of faithfulness. Polluted offerings on the altar, corrupt priests, intermarriage, divorce, calling evil good. Israel wasn't doing a thing right. They had lost heart. They questioned God's love for them. They doubted his justice. And so chapter 3 began with God reminding Israel that the messenger of the covenant is coming. And with him, both punishment and purification, both cleansing and condemnation. And so as we turn our hearts this morning to verses 6 through 12, we begin to get kind of a deeper glimpse at the heart of God, that the Lord longs to bless his children. Read with me, please, Malachi 3, 6 through 12. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we, uh, we again return to Malachi to hear what you are saying to us. Uh, we ask that you would prepare our hearts for this message. Malachi touches on uh, such convicting themes. And Lord, our, our impulse is probably to run, and yet, Lord, you are asking us to sit and to hear it. And so, Lord, we ask that you would soften our hearts, and uh, Holy Spirit, penetrate our, our minds and our hearts with this convicting truth. Allow uh, me and my uh, sinfulness and opinions not get in the way of the message you want us to hear. And Lord, as we continue to work with this convicting way of the message you want us to hear, And Lord, as we continue to worship this morning, we we do think of Tom, our pastor. We ask that you would be with him as he is uh, on sabbatical. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be rejuvenating him and uh, giving him rest and uh, inspiring him for uh, his many years of service to come at this place. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, When I was a boy, my grandmother, who was the only grandparent I ever knew, 
enabled my father, her only son, to take his family to Disney World over Christmas for the first time. I think I was maybe 11, I don't know exactly, but this was a huge deal. I mean, this was colossal, especially to a, a little guy in the prime of his youth like me. Uh, so the six of us left an empty house and, uh, and went to Orlando for Christmas. We spent a week at Disney World. It was, uh, it was awesome. And when we returned, we were unexpectedly met by a family room filled with presents under a decorated tree. You know, Santa is real. It's confirmation of his existence, right? <laughs> well, as it turns out, our parents had gotten us gifts, wrapped them, and stored them away, and gave our neighbor a key to the house. And so uh, when we were away, our neighbor placed all the presents under the tree. And, you know, so when we came back, it was as if, you know, Santa had visited. And, uh, you know, the, the, the trip to Disney World was tops. You know, you couldn't beat it. I w- it was awesome. But that wasn't enough for my mom and dad. They, they long to bless their family. That's just the way they are. That's the way they've always been. They never spoiled us, although I am the youngest. So if you ask my older siblings, they'd probably say I was spoiled. But it's really it's just a matter of perspective. Uh, <laughs> but in all seriousness, my parents, they just long to bless their children, even now as we are out of the house. And that one Christmas in which we received both an amazing trip to Disney and a pile of presents... Uh, to a little boy, it was as if they had opened the windows of heaven, as it says in Malachi, and poured down a blessing uh, imaginable, the most amazing gift imaginable. We've taken a beating kind of over the past couple weeks, haven't we? And uh, to be sure, I think we've uh, deserved it. But what we will begin to see in our text today, kind of like a flower coming to bloom, is uh, a fuller glimpse at the beautiful heart of God. You know, as much holiness and justice and judgment as we have encountered up to this point, Malachi shows us the heart of our Father, that the Lord longs to bless His children. But it's not done willy-nilly. Our full repentance is required. A full tithe is requested. And a full reward is promised. So our full repentance is required. You know, the, the, the preceding chapters of Malachi that we have been uh, progressing through in uh, the last two weeks address the many offenses and abuses that the nation of Israel was committing. And although I'm not going to revisit them now, we at least need to keep them in mind as we approach this text. All of what has come before <clears throat> culminates in God's call for repentance. Because one, God's character demands it, and, one, and two, our, our, our behavior necessitates it. So God's character demands it. Verse 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. In other words, it's because I am who I am that you are not consumed. And he identifies the nation of Israel here as children of Jacob, and I think purposely to construct a contrast, because who was Jacob? Well, he was a liar. He was a cheat. He was a deceiver. He was a fraud. You know, God could have easily said, For I, the Lord, do not change, and you, O children of Jacob, do not change. You have always been sinful, impenitent, rebellious, just like Jacob. The Lord is unchangeable in goodness and holiness, and Israel, the children of Jacob, were unchangeable in their sinfulness. Fortunately for Israel, fortunately for you and I, God does not change. His character and attributes are perfect and consistent and reliable. 
And this is why repentance is required, because God's not going to compromise who he is. God's unchanging character demands our repentance. But not only that, our behavior necessitates it. Verse 7, From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Here we see a filling out of the label children of Jacob. Israel had been disobedient for a very long time. Uh, the prophet Ezra, who really only preceded Malachi by a couple decades, uh, says, From the days of our fathers to this day we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame, as it is today. You know, the whole scope of Israel's history is brought into view, and the Lord reminds them of their habitual waywardness. In the Scriptures, a prophetic call to repentance is normally followed by a promise of salvation. And that's what we find here, do we not? He says, return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. You know, to repent is to turn from wicked ways, to turn away from unrighteousness, and to turn toward a holy God. You know, return is a covenantal term, kind of hinting that uh, there's going to be a reestablishment of a pre-existing relationship. Return to me, I will return to you. But again, they dispute God. How shall we return? Some translations render this question with why? Why shall we return? You know, if we were to express this in kind of common vernacular, the question Israel poses here, you know, it could, it could easily, easily be said, you know, what do you mean we need to return? We've done nothing wrong. It's a dangerous thing to reside in a place of spiritual ignorance so that one is oblivious to the sin and shortcomings in his or her life. It's like the Pharisees in Jesus' day. They thought they were doing everything right, but their hearts were all wrong. What do you mean we need to return? We've done nothing wrong. I learned this week that in antiquity, uh, the Roman guard would uh, sometimes uh, shackle captives to dead bodies, uh, such that the body of the living captive and the dead person were face to face. That's how they fastened them. And this was not merely unpleasant for the captive, but it would actually eventually result in the captive's death. Because the stifling, vulgar stench of the decaying body from which the captive could not escape would eventually overcome him in suffocation. The poet Virgil describes this cruel punishment this way. <clears throat> the living and the dead at his command were coupled face to face and hand to hand, till choked with stench and loathed embraces tied, the lingering wretches pined away and died. Outside of Christ, the dead corpse to which all of man is shackled is sinfulness, and it will stifle and suffocate him to death. In Christ, the believer's shackles have been obliterated, and we breathe in the sweet fragrance of God's grace. But we still wrestle with our sinful propensities, do we not? You know, in the meantime, we still battle against the flesh. Though we have been saved <clears throat> from its ultimate consequence, sin continues to act as a deadening factor in our spiritual lives. And if we allow sin to remain shackled to us, if we permit sin to persist in our lives, its deadening effect will wreak havoc on our life-giving relationship with God the Father. 
if we do not continually seek repentance in our lives, the choking stench of sin will deaden and stifle our faith. Only repentance frees us from certain death. Only repentance breaks the shackles of sin's grip on us. You know, death and life, they cannot coexist. The Lord, belong, the, the Lord longs to bless His children, but full repentance is required. God's character demands it, and our behavior necessitates it. Patrick Morley, a contemporary Christian author, he writes about the common misconception, quote, that uh, we can add Christ to our lives, but not subtract sin. It's a change in belief without a change in behavior. In other words, many in the church desire the blessings of Christ, but do not want to do the work that is asked of us. The result is that we confess Jesus with our mouths, but we do not confess him with our lives. Now, you know, the lifelong process whereby the Holy Spirit renews us and changes our heart, uh, you know, otherwise known as sanctification, it is a, it's lifelong. It, it can be gradual at times. It can ebb and flow at times. Maybe circumstances might result in a rapid growth, but whichever the case Growth cannot happen in the Christian life without repentance. Turning away from sin and turning toward Christ. You know, the resounding call of the prophets was repentance. The resounding call in the Gospels was repentance. The resounding call in Paul's letters was repentance. Turn away from your sin and turn toward the Savior. Not only is our full repentance required, but a full tithe is requested. <clears throat> you know, a, a significant component of our um, obedience to God is financial stewardship. To be a proper steward, steward in the area of finances necessitates that we must first recognize any sin in this area and then consequently respond in faith. Recognizing the sin in response to their question, how shall we return? God retorts here in verse 8. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. You know, to rob means to take, to steal something that is not yours, to withhold it as your own uh, from someone else. God makes it personal. He says, you are robbing me. But again, as is their custom, they respond almost argumentatively. How have we robbed you? The people ask how, you know, revealing their ignorance. And it may very well be that uh, you know, their ignorance, ignorance was due to the faulty and incomplete teaching of the priests. Uh, recall the Lord's words in chapter 2, verse 8, speaking to the priests. You have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You know, they didn't even know how they were screwing up. But ignorance doesn't excuse culpability. God explains to them the nature of their robbing in your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. <clears throat> Tithes and contributions, as referenced here, are actually not the same historically. Uh, in Hebrew, the word tithe actually means, technically, a tenth part. The practice of giving a tenth of one's possessions was actually commonplace in the ancient Near East. Many countries practiced uh, the uh, calling for a tithe. And it was the custom and practice of God's people as well. Genesis 14, 20. And Abraham gave him, that is God the Most High, a tenth of everything. Genesis 28, 22. Jacob vowed to the Lord, and all of what I own, all that you give me, 
I will give you a full tenth. Israel's tithe, was a, it was a compulsory contribution. The Lord required it as an act of obedience and faith. And eventually, when the, when the Levitical priesthood was established, it was decreed that that tithe go to them to support them. That's how they made their living, off the tithes of the people, so that they could do their jobs leading the people in worship. And although I won't get into it here, scholars who have poured over the books of Leviticus and Numbers Deuteronomy actually find evidence for two, if not three, separate tithes, amounting to potentially 20 to 30 percent of Israel's income going to the overall worship of Yahweh. And that's significant when we consider that sometimes we struggle to even let go of 10 percent. Contributions, uh, as mentioned here, on the other hand, they were offerings kind of above and beyond the standard tithe and were set aside for various purposes, most significantly kind of the care and maintenance of the tabernacle, which was their place of worship. By and large, however, the tithes and offerings of the people enabled the Levites to act as priests to the people, to perform their holy duties, to maintain the tabernacle, all of which were a necessary means of Israel's worship of the one true God, Yahweh. And so if tithes and contributions were withheld, this viable work could not go on, or at least it would be compromised significantly. Therefore God said to Israel, You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Verse 10, God then exhorts the people, kind of as an outward sign of an inward repentance he says, quote, bring the full tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. You know, essentially, if you return to me, this is how I will return to you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. Every last one of you, don't withhold a penny. Bring the full tithe. The promise that, quote, there may be food in my house may very well explain the curse mentioned in verse 9. You know, you are cursed with a curse. That curse may very well have been crop failure and drought, uh, resulting in a shortage of food and resources for the people, especially the priests. When you consider that the priests not only were struggling with the general scarcity of food and water in the area, but they relied on the people for their resources, and so they were getting shortchanged twice. <coughs> Put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. Now, how are we to interpret that? You know, you might be familiar with Deuteronomy 6.16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Well, the answer is rather simple. It's actually not the same word. It's a different meaning. Uh, You know, there's a story in Exodus in which the people, uh, having been uh, liberated from Egypt, were out in the desert, and they quarreled with Moses and Aaron at a place called Mirabah. And they, they tried the Lord's patience. That was the word. Essentially, for they tested the Lord. They tried his patience. But here in Malachi, the Lord is asking the people to take a risk and trust in him so that he might prove to them who he is, that he might prove his character to them. Different word, different application. Not to try his patience. Now, the context is very important for the interpretation of these verses. These verses, the land was in a drought, okay? Crop failure, uh, shortage of food, the weather wasn't helping. God says, if you do this, I will open the door, the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Now, what do you think that means? You know, if there was a drought and the Lord said he would 
pour down a blessing, whatever could that mean? Unfortunately, many people throughout the ages, and even now, maybe especially now, have wrongly interpreted this verse as meaning, you know, if you give God money, He'll give you more money back. It's called the health and wealth gospel, and it's the most crippling, heretical scam ever to hit the church. What God is promising here to the nation of Israel in Malachi's day is not money, but rain. Money wouldn't have helped. You can't eat it. You can't drink it. It doesn't quench your thirst. If there's nothing to buy, what good is money going to do? Rain is what they needed. God promised to open the windows of heaven and pour down a blessing until there is no more need. But it required an act of faith on Israel's part, an outward sign of their inward repentance, a tithe. Martin Luther, Protestant reformer of the 16th century, once said there are three conversions in the Christian life. Conversion of the heart, conversion of the mind, conversion of the purse. This, the issue of the relationship between faith and finances is a very a prickly one, and apparently it has always been so. You know, in certain spheres of life, believers are very enthusiastic about God's sovereignty and intervention. You know, we are fine with giving God control over our lives to a certain extent. If there's a health issue, if something wrong with us physically, we pray for God's intervention. If there's a strained family dynamic, you know, perhaps a, a parent-child relationship is a very difficult one. You know, we pray for God's intervention. But when it comes to our finances, oftentimes believers would rather God just butt out. We think, I made this money. It's mine to decide what to do with. Sometimes we are aggressively protective with our finances, safeguarding, managing, investing, and spending our money independently and autonomously. We dislike it when others meddle in our finances, whether that be the government or a bank or a church. But you know, your money is not your money. My money is not my money. Our finances are essentially on loan to us. Every breath you and I take is a gracious gift that God the Father grants us moment by moment. I mean, it kind of maybe sounds a little odd, but God owns everything. It's all His. I mean, if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, that perspective shouldn't necessarily inform your financial stewardship specifically as it concerns the tithe. Tithing is how the local church is able to function and grow. Your tithe is your financial offering to that church. Fundamentally, a tenth of your income is to be given to the local church where you worship. Anything above and beyond that is an excellent evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. But do not make the increasingly common mistake of calling other discretionary giving your tithe, because it's technically not. The bottom line is that your first responsibility is your church. That's how it was in the Bible. That's how it is for us today. The church has been established by Christ himself, and so our first priority for financial stewardship is the church. Also, understand that 
Giving of your time is not your tithe. There's no biblical or theological support for the rationale that offering your time qualifies as your tithe. Nor does rationale exist for the consideration that various other things are your tithe. For instance, offering up your home for the purpose of a meeting, allowing the church to use a vehicle or maybe your services for a given event or need, volunteering to help out around the church office, facilitating a community group, the, the list goes on. These are not your tithe. Your tithe is your financial contribution to the church's ongoing effort to make disciples, to plant churches, to renew communities. Your financial contribution goes to supporting the staff, goes to funding the growing church ministries and establishing resources for the ongoing work of church planting, which is happening even now. This is why your tithe is of utmost importance. That being said, it's, it's easy for us to give excuses, is it not? You know, I simply can't afford it right now. Uh, I'm too far in debt to tithe. You know, once I get blank, paid off, car, mortgage, credit card, then I'll be in a situation where I can tithe. Once I get that raise, I'll give to the church. And once I am financially stable, once I am making so much, or once I have so much stored away in the bank, essentially once I am comfortable with where I'm at financially, then, then I will think about giving to the church. Now, I'm not pointing fingers here, because uh, these are real temptations and rationalizations that, uh, that many of us often struggle with. But in one sense, it's never convenient to tithe. That's really not the point. If you, like me, have said any of the before-mentioned statements, understand that they are merely symptomatic, not necessarily of a, of a you know, money problem, but of a heart issue, our heart's posture before the Lord. But you may find yourself in a difficult place in which you genuinely can't conceive of tithing because seemingly every last penny is being, being put toward meeting the very basic needs of life, and even that is very difficult. For you, it may not at face value be a hard issue because your practical needs are so blatantly apparent. But when it comes to tithing, there are essentially two very important sides of the same coin practicality, and spirituality. Practically, we are called to be responsible coins. And if you're struggling in this capacity, I, I seriously would highly recommend you attend one of the Good Sense uh, financial workshops that, that our church puts on periodically. Extremely valuable resource if, if you're in a place where you need advice and guidance on, on uh, budgeting on erasing debt, tithing, spending, etc. But beyond the practical, there's the fun fundamental spiritual component that really drives all that we do. Because at the end of the day, it's not a question of dollars and cents. It's not a question of dollars and cents. It's not really about the money. God doesn't need our money. He doesn't want our cash. He wants our hearts. What he desires is to be in relationship with us. It's about trusting the Lord and giving him our best, not our leftovers. It's about evaluating our hearts and using the practice of financial stewardship and tithing as a kind of barometer for evaluating the degree to which we are faithful to him in this capacity. 
God desires that our hearts be changed by the gospel by way of repentance. And as an act of our repentance, it's about evaluating our hearts. We're evaluating the degree to which we are faithful to him in this capacity. God desires that our hearts be changed by the gospel by way of repentance. And as an act of our repentance, God asks that we be faithful with our finances. Again, it's not a question of money. It's a question of our hearts. It's a question of our commitment to Him. And for the Lord, at the heart of all of this, is His desire to bless His children. That's where all of this is headed. It's His desire to bless His children. Brings us to our last point. A full reward is promised. Now, it kind of dawned on me that perhaps the word reward uh, may be a bit of a misnomer. You know, kind of conjures up notions of tricks and puppy treats, and that's certainly not the kind of idea I want to communicate here. The point is that an, as an act of repentance, we offer to the Lord what is rightfully His. And in response, He blesses us such that, one, we enjoy a bounty, and two, we are a witness to Him. We enjoy a bounty. Verse 11, I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. God promised Israel to protect the fields from the devourer, which most likely means locusts, and to ensure that the fields would bear fruit. The rain would come, the land would again produce crops, and the people would enjoy a bounty. All needs would be met. And when your needs are met, when you, when you are cared for, you, know, you, you are enjoying a bounty. For whatever reason, it's kind of conjured up in my head, kind of this picture of like the lone cowboy, you know, out on the range, this horse kind of scavenging for grass as he drinks kind of rough coffee out of a beat-up tin cup next to the cr- crackling fire, and he says, you know, it doesn't get any better than this. You know, he doesn't have much, but he's enjoying a bounty because it's really not about quantity. It's about quality. God doesn't promise financial prosperity anywhere in this passage, but he does promise that he'll provide in a given area of need. For the Israelites, they needed food. And so in response to their faithful giving, the Lord promised agricultural fruitfulness. That was their need. The Lord longs to bless his children, but to what end? To be a witness. Verse 12, Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight says the Lord of hosts. The consequence of this relationship is that others might see and know that our God reigns. The blessings of the Lord are to be a witness to Him for all to see. They are evidence of His love. They are evidence of His faithfulness to His people. God's blessings are an evangelistic signpost signaling to all that our Lord takes care of His own. Our Lord longs to bless His children. This is His heart. This is where all of this is culminating in this passage. Now thus far, this little book of Malachi has been packed full of difficult exhortations. You know, the convicting light of Malachi's message uh, you know, hits so many aspects of our lives, it's kind of hard to run and hide. Judgment upon judgment, as we progress through the book, our sin becomes ever clearer. But here in the middle chapter, in the middle part of chapter 3, we begin to see the very heart of God the Father. In light of our waywardness, God calls us 
to repent, to turn away from our sin, to turn toward God in obedience. And here Malachi challenges us to test him by way of the tithe that is asked of us. Because money is and has always been, the Lord cares about your heart first and foremost. So my encouragement to you is to see financial stewardship as an opportunity to both honor God and the ongoing work of His church and to grow in faith. It's not a transaction. It's a relationship built on trust. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I do ask that you would uh, impact upon our hearts the the truth, Lord, that you long to be in relationship with us. Lord, sometimes uh, we get caught up, we, we, we trip over some of the components of our, our walk because we don't understand how they apply. We don't understand. You know, we, we filter it through our own you know, confused worldviews. And Lord, I, I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would break through, that you would shatter through all of that, that you would impact upon us uh, the convicting truth of this passage, that we would, first of all, repent before anything else, repent of our sin and turn to you. And then, Lord, in response to that repentance, that we would be faithful to you in the area that you have called us. Because, Lord, you long to bless us. You long to be in deep relationship with us. That is your heart. And you are our Father. In Jesus' name, amen.